Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. On this episode, I talked to Matt Serban. Uh, Matt is a musician and a stained glass artist. Matt uh, is probably best known for being one of the vocalists and guitarists and the only constant member of the hardcore band Backstabbers Incorporated, or Backstabbers Inc. Um, that band uh, is uh, semi on hiatus right now. Um, he's also in plays in the band Northern Curse. He's got another project that he is in the works that uh, we talked about in this conversation. And like I said, Matt is also a stained glass artist, which is sort of how we first connected uh, doing art events. And Matt's Matt's a guy that I had been wanting to talk to for this podcast for quite some time, and just both of us have hectic schedules, so it's taken taken a bit of time, a couple couple years now, but uh, we made it happen. It was great to sit down and chat with him, and uh, yeah, we talk, covered a lot of ground, and I really enjoyed this conversation. There is, we recorded at Sunny's in Dover, which I've recorded a couple of these before. Uh, at that location, I used to work there, and um, it wasn't a super busy, but there is some background noise, and uh, so you know, hopefully, you can get through that because I think the conversation was really good, and also mention it in the conversation in passing, but uh, just uh, kind of on on a personal note because it just happened a couple days ago. Um, just want to give love to the family and the friends of Reed Mullen from Corrosion of Conformity. Uh, Reed was the drummer, one of the founding members, and Reed passed away at the age of 53 just a couple of years ago, and, you know, Corrosion Conformity was one of those bands that got me into heavier music and also got me into, uh, you know, checking out politics bands that, you know, I, I talked about some of the different organizations that they supported uh, inside the liner notes of their album Blind, and, you know, that really kind of opened me up to... Um, bands kind of taking a stand for stuff they believe in and early on in my you know my early 20s um uh meeting him several times at shows and having conversations with reed was always very kind to me and uh very enthusiastic and just a very warm welcoming person and uh by all accounts from everyone that knew him uh was a was a really great guy so uh you know the the world is at a loss for his passing. So, yeah, I uh, just wanted to say a little something about that. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed my chat with Matt, and I hope you will enjoy listening to it. So, without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with Matt Servant. So I appreciate you sitting down and I, I, talking to me, and I, I definitely appreciate. I always appreciate free, free music. Why not? Right? So yeah, it was. Um, so you had. I had to look back at your timeline because I remember when sure. you first posted, and I thought it was like. I was like, that was probably nine months ago. It turned out it was like, like eighteen, nineteen months ago. Um, yeah. When Kerrang did their uh, either the United States of Hardcore. Oh yeah. And. Yeah. and uh, uh, Backstabbers Inc. was mentioned as like right. the hardcore band of 
New Hampshire. Which yeah, is, that's 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 pretty rad, especially because it's a you know it's a European publication. Absolutely. Yeah. I was completely floored and blown away. Yeah. It was unsuspected for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's a I wouldn't say there's necessarily a ton of bands, and that might be my own ignorance and not knowing the bands right. of, of today. Yeah. But the fact that it was in Kerrang, something I looked up to as a kid. Right. And we haven't been an active band for over five years or longer. So right. it was definitely a surprise and yeah. it felt very good. Was there um, did you like did you see a print version of it or was it like how did you find out? I want to say someone tagged me on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I never saw a print version. I kind of yeah. wish that I had thought of that earlier right. and tried to get a copy. Of sure, it. sure. Uh, I was just. Um, did you peruse like the whole list to kind of see who else was? Yeah, totally. And I, it, I can't remember off the top of my head. I just remember being sandwiched between tons of great bands right. and feeling again just sort of in awe. Of it, yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, it was one of those things that I was asking if you had seen the other bands just because I was curious how many were, you know, currently, you know, active yeah, and how many of them were people who hadn't done yeah. stuff in a while. And um, so is Backstabbers completely done or is just kind of a back burner thing yeah. right now? It's Sadly, it is a back burner thing. Yeah. However, with that being said, the um, I did write a new album okay. about... It was about a year ago, so yeah. I finished it. So the long and short of it is, is my brother had quit maybe about two years ago. Right. And over that next following year, he had talked about possibly coming back. Yeah. So I just, at that point, I'd already written only about half the album. Yeah. And the way the band worked up until that point was that we basically took... Uh, Split writing duty 50-50. Right. And you both play guitar, show. you both do vocals. Exactly. Um, but when he started to pull back after his initial... Because he quit that band and Northern Curse at the same time, which was a double blow. But um, I just kept going with writing with it. It was me um, and our drummer, Mark, our current drummer, Mark, mm-hmm. Mark Blanchard. And, uh, yeah, so to answer your question, it's there in the background for sure I basically started Northern Curse out of frustration because Backstabbers wasn't doing anything sure and um, I have to say in this area it seems that it might just be the area or it might be the age group yeah but people seem to take better to black metal today than hardcore sure Um, and so it was just easier to kind of continue in doing that yeah um and it was easier to find members. Like, the other problem with Backstabbers and why it's in the back burner is I can't find anybody. Part yeah. of that is my own fault for not being an active member of the local scene. So I don't... I almost hate to admit it, but I don't go to a lot of local shows unless I'm playing. It's just, it's just what, you know... I, maybe I'm too busy or however you want to... There's only so many hours in the day, too. It's true. It's true. So with that, it's sort of just remains in the background the intention is as soon as this new Northern Curse record comes out we'll just switch gears our current bass player for Northern Curse has I believe agreed to play bass and since the song's already written we just need to find another guitar player although at this point I'm really supposed to be just the singer yeah so we would actually have to find two guitar players so I've always been a fan of this sort of um 
like right if they will come. So I don't really wait around. I just start a band and worry about it later on. Well, and it's weird because you know I, I listen to a pretty wide swath of musical genres. Sure. I'm pretty sure you do too. Yes, yeah, and uh, just I, I'm basing that just on you know because I post on social media stuff I listen to, and I, it's always interesting to me the people who like different stuff, and I'm always like, oh, all right, so and so's into that, and sometimes it's like, of course, so and so thinks that's cool, and then I'm like, oh, that's interesting that they're yeah. into that, but which I totally respect that, but for me. I, something that I've noticed over time, particularly with like hardcore and you know the darker metal genres, there seems to be more of a turnover in members than in other music. And I mean, I don't have a theory as yeah. to why. It's just something that I've noticed over time. It's you know, particularly when uh, if I end up talking to people from you know that genre of music yeah. and you know someone will be like who are you talking to and I'll tell them the band they're like so at what point you know when do they enter and then sometimes it's very easy for me to be like oh they've you know been doing this the whole time or whatnot but yeah I mean do you have any thoughts on that as to maybe why or you know why there's such high turnover in yeah. underground heavy music I think in some respects people may age out sure um, I think personally for me if 20-year-old version of me told me not only would I be still playing hardcore at my age, yeah. but in the same band, sure. I would find that extremely hard to believe. Sure. And there is this, it won't be secret now, but there is a secret part of me that doesn't necessarily want to see myself continuing to do this style of music sure. for much longer. It yeah. feels, at times it feels weird. Yeah. On tour with Backstabbers, it, sometimes it feels weird that your audience is half your age, right. the houses that you would stay at, the kids were half your age. Right. There's something about it. Okay. Thank you. Um, fries were delivered, that's why there was a pause. <laughs> uh, and I think my other theory is that, and I'll use my brother as an example, I hope this isn't me speaking out of turn on his behalf. But how, what do you explain to me? I think there's an element of the stress of, of mixing life with the band, meaning like, you know, it's no secret in underground music, you don't get paid a ton of money. Especially the band, you know, a mid-tier band like Backstabbers, we don't make tons of money from it. Sure. It's like a glorified hobby, essentially. So there's the uh, responsibilities of adult life, um... And then I think also there's a part where for my brother, he just, in his own words, he said something along the lines of not feeling it anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I can't explain even to myself why I still have this like very deep sort of anger or aggression that I feel need to get out. Sure. But at the same time, I think that everyone has a way in which they sort of displace their you know, ugly emotions. Right. And for me, music is the easiest thing sure. to go to. Sure. Um, I do visual arts to some extent, but that usually has, in no way does that ever really have an emotional context to it. Right. Music is the go-to and it's yeah. really easy. And I can always dig as far back as I'd like to, to gain inspiration from that. Yeah. So I think the two things that I would say would be it's age and maybe just lack of of a, some sort of a, I don't know a catalyst for it. Sure, sure. I mean, and also you know to your point about um, not making a whole lot of money. You know, with with I would say the more extreme 
and I use that word loosely, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, for, you know, the the less mainstream a type of music, the the less opportunity to make a living at it may yeah. be. So that mm-hmm. way, you know, you can do it for a while, but it, it's it's a tough life, you know. Even you know, even friends of mine who are in you know heavier bands you know who've been doing it for a long time you know guys in Convert and stuff yeah, like sure. that, that that they don't live in plush mansions no. regardless of what anyone might think yeah. of you know a band like that you know they're basically living basically the same way as me someone who works at a grocery store Absolutely. you know yeah. um, you know and having kids and stuff certainly has an effect on that sure. as well so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely true yeah um so you know you brought up visual arts um, you know you you work in stained glass which was sort of I think that was I think it was a wrong brain event probably like one of the like okay. the bazaars that I first saw you oh, like sure. set up and I was like Oh, that's the dude from Backstabbers. I had no idea that he, you know, did yeah, that. Like, yeah. how, how long have you been doing stained glass? And, like, what, how'd you get into that? It's kind of a funny story. Um, I started maybe a little over 20 years ago, actually. Okay. And it was just one, simply one of those situations where I was living here in Dover. I was, yeah. like, 20-something years old. I didn't really have a career choice in mind. I hadn't gone to college. Yeah. And I was working at like a window factory in Summersworth. Okay. Didn't really like the job particularly, so I decided to quit, much like most 20 year olds do, without a plan. Right. Um, and to not make this sound too convoluted, it was my then girlfriend's best friend's older brother worked at a stained glass studio in Boston. Okay. And around the same time, I had another friend who was moving to Boston. And so I had already decided I was moving there and needed a job. And essentially, my friend just said, hey, I, I work at a stained glass studio. I could get you a job there. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how it all got started. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily initially an artistic thing so much as just sure. like a, it was a necessity for a job and a yeah. new opportunity. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I I don't necessarily consider myself an artist. I just sort of fell into this field. And being a young kid, you know, from New Hampshire, essentially, I it was the first time I sort of had this understanding that people liked their jobs. Right. So everyone that worked in that particular studio were from, mostly were from other countries, from yeah. Vietnam, Korea, Italy, Ireland, Vietnam, or whatever. Um, and most, most, I would say, maybe even 70 to 75% had gone to art school okay. and were there, unlike me, on yeah. purpose. Yeah. And so they had studied in fine arts or had you know, gone to art school in general, and um, they were following that dream. Yeah. And for me, it was just this, oh, you know, this job. Right. The great thing about it, and I have to, and to the credit of the, uh, the studio owner, uh, the studio was Lynn Hovey Studios in Boston. One of the things, one of the great things he did was he, when you started, no matter what your position was, that you had to do two projects to learn the craft. So okay. uh, leaded and in a copper foil piece. And we also worked four 10 hour days. So we had Fridays off to come in the studio to do our own stuff. Oh, that's cool. So that was huge. Yeah. So even if you didn't want to, you would still have, you could have a Friday off. Yeah. But someone like me, I just thought it was something to, to try out. Right. And I kind of, kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. But 
I hated the city, to be honest. I hated living there. So after about two years, I moved back to New Hampshire, and there were no stained glass studios around here. And I didn't touch stained glass for a good 15 years. Okay. And then maybe about a little over five years ago, I think it was, Yeah. I just started to think about it again and kind of missed it. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who are tattoo artists. And so the first thing that happened was I sort of saw a direct correlation between like traditional tattoo flash right. stained glass oh yeah kind of a spark ignited and I thought oh I could uh, I could mix these two things together and do something that you don't usually see in your church or your grandmother's house right right yeah I mean and your your stuff definitely has a tattoo aesthetic to, to it um, and it's funny because I've seen you know in the last couple of years you know being in various tattoo studios and you know it's looking at a flash on the wall and there's been a couple of things that I'm like oh I could totally see that as one of Matt's stained glass pieces so that's, absolutely yeah it's pretty cool yeah just trying to do something different that um and it isn't worked out you know I've done all kinds of different things but to finally find an actual paying job and it, right. it's just added all the you know it's just added so much more value to my day-to-day life, yeah. I have to say. So. so, prior to that, had you, I mean, had you done anything, like, with visual arts? Where Did you draw growing up? You know? Yeah. yeah. Not necessarily. I think, again, I this goes back to my not really feeling particularly like an artist but maybe about 10 15 years ago I got really into remember when street art was huge oh yeah I got really into like stencils right and um I did a little you know graffiti style stencils on the sure. screen and whatnot sure. but most of it was on like canvas or like wood from Home Depot right I did a lot it's kind of funny because I don't know how it happened, but I was really lucky to kind of come into it right when it was hot. So I got a, you know, I was doing gallery shows, but then also like small coffee shops and restaurants. Yeah. So I did that about a good, you know, and then eventually working myself into being able to do commissions. Yeah. Um, but other than other than that, I hadn't really done anything else yeah. visually. Yeah. So that was that was kind of like in between starting doing the stage. Yeah. Last after month. I moved back from Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just around that time that like Banksy was getting huge, or just before right. that, and right. you know, stencils were yeah. huge and street art in general. Yeah. Um, and actually, I had also made a connection between stencils and, and stained glass because they kind of are similar in that you have to sort of break things down into um, layers or colors. You know, it's it's not too different. Bold lines, the process right. is very different, but the thought process is very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen you've posted some images when you've been working on a piece with you know the the, the everything's graphed out beforehand, sure. and it's just it's interesting to me because you know doing painting myself, I never thought about the process until I was actually asked by someone that like, yeah. well, what's your process? And I was like, I, I have no fucking idea. And then so someone watched me paint. You know, it was for an interview I did a couple years ago, and they were photographing me and every time I would do something they're like now what are you doing I was like let me think about it right yeah but then so kind of seeing that I got kind of an insight into the process but I mean what's for someone who knows next to nothing about stained glass which myself but also there's probably a lot of people listening like what's the process from beginning to end so say someone wants you know a stained glass piece from you Um, they approach you say hey I'm looking for 
this image? How, you know, how do you go about it from that? Yeah, the first thing is uh, you know just a sketch in general to kind of get the idea. Yeah. Um, then you take the once you get a finished sketch, you want to. The thing that people should know about glass is that. There are some limitations, which is another reason why I like it. Kind of like why I like stencils. Mm -hmm. Stencils, you know, traditionally you'd only do, you know, four or five layers, and you could get your point across. Right. And stained glass is sort of primitive in the same sort of way. I mean, of course, within stained glass, there's all kinds of different schools of stained glass where people paint right. and then fire in a kiln. That's not really anything I've done yet that I would be probably, I would probably be looking to do it in the future, but not yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, but once you get your drawing set out, the next thing you would do is you would get probably your glass selection would be the next best place to start. So that's when you would decide what textures you want to use, what colors. Uh, do you want to use like an antique glass or you know glass that's more um, opalescent? You know these sorts of things. Um, I suppose the next thing you would do is decide. For me, not a lot of stained glass. Well, maybe. I don't think it's as common for people to do work both in copper foil and lead. Yeah. Um, and these are two very different things. So then the next thing you would decide is whether you want to use copper foil or lead. What's the uh, What's the advantages and disadvantages of the two of them? I would say the advantages to copper foil is that you can do greater detailed work. So copper foil is a um, it's like an adhesive backed copper tape essentially. Okay. Um, and it, I think it was, well, it was invented by Lewis Comfort Tiffany of like the, what, 18, 1900s. Okay. As, uh, so it's a relatively new modern technique of stained glass. Okay. I think that that actually cuts out a step in a way because once you've drawn out the glass and then cut it and grinded it down, you next would take that tape and you'd wrap around all of it, all the edges. Yeah. And once you've done that and burnished all the edges and made it all smooth, then you can go ahead and solder the whole piece together and you're done. Um, in lead, you actually, you would, you would cut it, grind the glass, and then you would take this lead cane, it's like an H shape, and you'd stretch it out and you'd wrap each piece of glass in that, but then you would solder um, all the joints on that. And you'd have to do, well, you would solder both sides. Now, here's where it would also get a little more difficult for copper foil. So copper foil, you would actually have to solder every single spot where you see the glass touches or the foil touches. You'd have to solder all of them. Okay. So if you're looking to get good at soldering, that's a great way to do it because you'll be soldering every single line you see both sides. Yeah. Um, so that's a little more difficult in that respect. Uh, lead, it's a lot less soldering because you really only need to solder the joints at where you uh, join the lead up to itself. Yeah. Um, and then once you've done that with copper foil, you're pretty much done. You can apply a patina to it if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, put some hangers on it and you're good to go. Yeah. With lead, then you would do what this process called cementing where you would take this sort of um, weatherization cement and you would sort of uh, you would kind of force that in between the lead and the glass itself and once yeah. it hardens then it's it's weatherized yeah. uh, copper foil I would say is traditionally used for smaller pieces you know your sun catchers things are hanging in your window that kind of stuff um, and lead would be what you would use in you know churches residential that kind of stuff sure sure how much 
for the pieces that you do, how sure. much of it is like an ornamental piece yep. that someone's going to hang up as opposed to a functional piece that's in a, you know, a window or a door or something like that? Yeah, I mean, when I started out doing it on my own a couple of years ago, it was mostly small, what I called flash stuff. Just yeah. like little things you can hang in your, in your window, small things. Um, and now I'm trying to make just mostly panels. However, I would say less than 40% of that is something that people have installed at this point. I expect that will change, and that's my intention, is to do more larger sales stuff on my own as opposed to just this video. Yes, thank you. No, 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 you're fine. Um, To do... That would be my intention from now, from this point out, is I'll still do small stuff with crackers and things like that. But I'm really looking for clients who are looking for bigger things that can be installed. Sure. Do you also, like, do you get involved in the installation as well, or is that something that you typically don't do? I guess it depends on who it is and where they live. If they live a little further away, then maybe not. Right. Um, if it's someone I know personally, maybe. I guess it would really depend on, on where... Sure. where they are and who they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, we do installation at the studio I work for, sure. so I do know how to do it. Right. I think it would just add extra costs to an already sort of expensive, you know, process. Sure, sure. I got you. Yeah. Um, what's, what's the turnaround time? Like, how much time is involved for sure. you in, in making a piece? Obviously, size is going to have a big, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, big factor in it that. It can take, uh, you know, a few weeks to a couple months to depending um, how difficult it is in size. So, yeah, I would say the average turnaround is probably at least a month to three. I always have a little bit of trickiness as far as, like, managing time with commission work. I mean, I'm, I really need deadlines myself when people are like, oh, take all the time you need. I'm like, don't don't tell me that because then... <laughs> yeah, you won't get it done. I mean, I have I literally had a couple of commission pieces that people, you know, two years ago were like, yeah. do it whenever, and I've had to have... The, and they're friends, so it's not that big a deal, but I've had to have that conversation. I'm like, if time's really not a factor... Yeah. You gotta understand that's absolute back burner stuff. Like that's even yeah. stuff that's like a flight of fancy that pops into my head. I'm probably gonna work on that before I work on this. Right. Um, but uh, you know, is it when you started? Were you finding that it was like were your commissions a lot of people you knew to start out, or was it people who were just like, hey, does anyone know someone yeah. staying glass or mix, mixture of both? I would say it was it was definitely a mixture of both in the beginning. Certainly, people I know. Obviously, social media platforms are a great tool for someone like me who doesn't necessarily or is not very great at being a salesman. So it's a good way to get my pieces out there. Right. In fact, like I have a big cartel site, but I am terribly bad at running it. So sorry, anyone, if you've ordered anything and I haven't actually checked the email. Um, but Facebook and Instagram are huge. You know, I would say that probably 80%, maybe 90% of what I do for commissions is through either one of those two. Yeah, yeah. It's huge, huge help. Right. Do you... I know you said earlier that, you know, music is really kind of like your, your, your outlet. Um, do you... 
you ever work on stained glass pieces just for yourself? I mean, I know you. I, you know, I've seen you have stuff for sale at art fairs. So yeah. obviously, that's going to be something that's not a commission based thing. Yeah. But do you ever just like, oh, I have this idea, I'm going to try and execute yeah. it? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. So what in between commissions? That's usually what I'm trying to do. Obviously, it's hard with like, you know, a, a job. Even though it's the same, I'm doing the same thing. Sure. Um, but yeah, like I'm working on a new piece right now. My goal for 2020 is just to do a new piece every month. Right on. Um, trying to get bigger and better, and and I'm sure you might have the same problem. Like there is only so many hours in the day. So part of the problem is I, I'll have a hundred ideas, but I have to choose. Yeah. And you kind of have to be disciplined to decide what you're going to make. Yeah. The problem with stained glass, and maybe this is the same with painting, is sometimes I don't make the right decision, and so I'm hanging on to stuff. But also, I understand that my target audience, I would say for the most part, like people who like my sort of quirky things, you know, whether it's like something from the Goonies or, right. you know, skateboarding or right. tattoos. Um, these are working people too. And the problem, the, the risk that I'm running by making, you know, flights of fancy out of my head is that these are expensive art pieces. Sure. And so then I'm, you know, once it's finished, it's like, what do I do with it? And since I'm bad at promoting myself, I, I'll post it once on Instagram, maybe twice, and then I'm like, oh, well. Guess it goes, nobody wants it. Yeah, I guess nobody wants it. And I, which is not a great way to operate. Of course. But uh, it's funny, I do, I, I have that issue as well. I mean, I think I think when I create stuff, you know, it's basically mostly time and you know, six to ten bucks in a canvas that I'm out. Because I I started this thing a couple of years ago where because if I have a painting sitting around too long, I get sick of looking at it. So I've been going around all over New England. I've just been leaving paintings in places, which is funny because a couple of people have found that and then you know, searching my name, like have tagged me and things, which is kind of cool. And they're like, this is awesome I'm just like good I'm glad someone's enjoying yeah. these because I was getting sick of looking which you know I've had other artists tell me like you can't do that because it's devaluing what you've got and I'm just like yeah but this is the one thing that I do that like it's for me it's great if someone else connects with it and wants to pay me for it but I'm going to do it regardless so and I'm Fair living enough. a single bedroom apartment and yeah. you know, the, the walls are always closing out on me yeah, right. between that and stacks of records and you know vintage Star Wars figures there's only so much room and the piles start falling over after a while yeah so. no, 100% yeah I mean, it is a tricky, it's a tricky thing to navigate. Like I do battle myself constantly about. Um, I've had some other stained glass artists who have said that I have a lot of range, which is is good, I think. But I'm not saying that I would ever want to try and do stained glass as a. So at the studio I work at, we do restoration as well, which right. is also a great way to keep your skills sharpened and a great way to learn different things that you wouldn't know what to do before. But with that being said, it would be awesome to, you know, my dream would to be some, you know, somebody who happens to have a boatload of money who bought, buys an old church and wants someone like me to come in and design all their right. their stuff for it, or maybe a storefront or whatever. Right. Um, but the trouble is, there's a couple different things that happen at the same time. One is, if I take commissions, for a while I was getting a lot of like animals, which is great, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm honored to take on, you know, people's, you know, kind of like these heirlooms for, you know, deceased pets and things of that nature. 
Um, but the more time I spend doing that, the less I'm building my skills in, in building my vision. So there's this kind con- like, you know, that's a paying gig, but I can't take all of this because I will never push my own stuff forward. Sure. Um, and same with the restoration aspect of what I do. So when I'm doing restoration for the studio, it's like that's taking up hours of the day. And so it's just always this delicate balance between when I can do my stuff, do I, can I like afford to take not only the time but money out of my own pocket to make something right. that may not sell for a year or two. Right. Um, and I find it's just this constant like balance trying to figure out how best to use my time at yeah. any given moment. Yeah. Jumping back to to music, like a bit kind of piggybacking off that. How do you, you know, because I know that uh, Northern Curse. Would you say that's your main musical output at this point? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. How do you like? Do you budget or schedule time specifically to to work on that, or is it just you've got some ideas for songs to try and get it down? Like, what's your process for yeah. music? I think the process for that is much like how you were speaking before about um, needing a deadline. So a great deadline for me is just deciding that I want to put out a new album for whatever project that I'm working on. And so uh, over the last year, it's like, you know, Backstabbers was becoming a back burner, unfortunately, much to my dismay. But the process usually goes, I'll, I'll get really into a thing for a while. And it's it's not too dissimilar from the stained glass process, meaning simply that once something is done, in my eyes, it kind of just, I'm like, okay, I'm done. Right. And so in this case, and hopefully my band members don't hear this, but in Northern Curse, like we literally finished, we're at the last stage of finishing this new record. So we're getting the final master, and then it's just like practice to get ready for shows, um, find a label to put it out, so on and so forth. And there's part of me creatively who's like, duh. And so now, I've sort of started this other side project, like another more straight-ahead hardcore band, just to sort of like, while Northern Curse is getting ready to play shows and and do all the processes that we need to get the record out, I want to just, I just want to fucking play shows. So I'm like, how can I do this? So I found some local people who are close by, and I'm just like, all right, let's like put together this this hardcore band, and like, let's do some stuff with this. Um... And I think the process also has a lot to do with convenience. It's like whatever idea or project I can see actually getting done. I hate doing things that I can't finish. I hate starting things I can't finish. I hate talking about things I'm not going to do. So I kind of wait and strike when I know I can get something accomplished. Sure, sure. That's kind of how I do it. I had, that makes sense. I had a great piece of advice that a friend gave me a couple years ago because I had, because I I was always the opposite where I was just like, I get an idea and like start talking about it and have all these grand and then a lot of times didn't fall through or I'd have another idea and like you know jump onto that as well and he's like he's like he's like, he's like I see you doing all this stuff he's like but also I see you frustrated because you say you're, you're planning on doing stuff and then you get mad at yourself for not doing it he's like don't tell anyone what you're gonna do tell people what you just did yeah. you know wait till you've accomplished it and, great advice great yeah advice. it's creative advice yeah for sure it's funny because with with certain things I do I do that although like with art 
I went the opposite route where I was so hesitant to post anything when I first started like doing it in earnest. So I was like, ah, I don't know if it's good enough, whatnot. Then I just finally was like, I'm gonna just take the ego out of it and post everything because even if I don't think the piece itself is great, it's me working at it and also showing that I'm working yeah. and like and it's cool um, you know, a month, six months. Facebook straight for that you know year thing and you're Definitely. like holy shit I did this a year ago yeah I can do X Y and Z now yeah you know so, and sometimes I'll see old stuff and I'm like oh that wasn't as bad as I thought or yeah. oh my god I can't believe I charged so much money for that so you know, yeah no yeah, totally yeah, yeah, yeah I totally get that so when did you because my understanding, you're the only you're the only constant member who's been in backstabbing for the whole life of the band. Yeah, like, right. What? Because um, your brother was not in the first incarnation of the band. No, he wasn't. No. So how did the, I know you had another vocalist initially, and then uh, was that was your brother joining after his exit, or was there crossover? How did that happen? Um, I started the band with the singer Ryan from Trapton. Um, when we used to work together in Dover at a silkscreen shop. And I started as a side project to another band that my brother and I were in um, in the mid to late 90s. It was like, you know, very of that time. Like, we called it emo metal, but it was like, you know, European-influenced, like, chuggy, metallic hardcore. Okay, what was that band called? As I Believe. Okay, okay. So, when we... So I was a singer of that band, and my brother played bass, and I wanted to play guitar in a band. And so when I first started Backstabbers, I didn't really, we were actually called Life Passed On at the time. Right. But I didn't even really know how to play guitar. And I also really wanted to play in like what I consider to be a straight up hardcore band. It's debatable whether or not that ever was a hardcore band. Right. But it is, it is and always was to me. Um, so I was in that maybe about, it was only about a year or two before my brother joined as bass player, and then our first band broke up. And then after a couple of years, like, my brother switched from bass to guitar. But I think within the first year of him being in the band, he basically became, I would say, like, the second songwriter. So it was, like, me and then him and... That's how it kind of right. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. It's like being in a band with your brother because I have three brothers sure. myself, and I've I just, I just finished reading uh, Steve Worman, the drummer from the Black Crows. Okay, yeah. Book about that, and you know, obviously, two famous brothers in that. And yeah. There's all rock and roll has a whole history of yeah, siblings, yeah. and I'm just like Oasis. Yeah, Oasis, the Kinks. You yeah, know, right. it's, there's a, there's a lot of them, but. The through line with a lot of it seems to be, you know, tough tough to get along. Uh, so, you know, how was it being in a band with your brother? I mean, obviously there was some longevity there, so yeah, it's okay. Right. But um, honestly, it was it was definitely like one of the best experiences of my life. Mm-hmm. My brother and I are like very, we are very similar, but we're also very different. Yeah, but. One of the things I remember about the band and that I will always cherish is that, you know, it makes me sort of... So sorry. Come on over. This is, this, is, this is a history of this podcast, too, of people interrupt. So Emma Emma has been on this podcast oh, before as well. Matt, Emma, do you guys know each other? Oh, sorry. I cut my hand, dude. There you go. Nice to meet you. Stained glass artist, comic artist. Oh, perfect. Oh, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll let you add it. Oh, sure. Cool. I'll, if you're still here when we're done, I'll come over and chat more. Too. 
Um, yeah, again, it was one of the best experiences of my life. I, I think I feel very lucky. You know, being musicians is something that I don't know if my brother and I actually set out to do. Yeah. Like our dad had been in like a kind of a, like a rock band when he was a kid for a short while, and we always like there was always music being played in our house. Okay. Um, we both really liked music. It was really important to you know our own personal like escape our rebellion yeah. I mean my whole life and my brother's too I would say is heavily influenced by music our veganism being straight edge all that stuff um, so sharing all those like ideals I remember you know very fondly like growing up we would listen to like DRI or Anthrax or Metallica and we would like you know like what all kids do you'd like pick up a hockey stick and we'd like sure We'd stand on our beds and have like fake shows with yeah. our neighbor, and we watched Headbangers Ball, and um, it was just again, I don't remember exactly if we ever thought we were going to be musicians. Right. Um, you know, we're both self taught still to this day. Like, I don't actually, I'm probably outing myself right now, but I don't actually know how to play guitar. I, right. I don't know any chords, I don't know any notes, I just. I've made my entire career on not knowing how to play. Right. So it's worked to my advantage, I think. But well, you um, have a style that's distinctly your own because of that. I hope. I hope that's how it translates. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's always a uh, you know kind of a a treat to have to show other people who join our bands like they're like what the fuck are you doing? Right. Like, I don't know. Just roll with it. I um I had a similar experience. Different different style of music, but you know in the mid to late 90s I was in a band and got to the point where me and the drummer were writing most of the songs because the drummer was a better guitar player than our guitar player was not to take away from our guitar player but the drummer was an amazing musician all around the guitar player wasn't a better drummer than our drummer was (laughs) so it was just so, but it got to the point, you know, because I was the vocalist in the band, but I kept contributing more and more to, like, arrangement, and then I started coming up with riffs, yeah. and I would actually sing them to him, and he'd have to, like, try and figure it out. Okay. And after probably six months of writing, you know, half of a record like that, he gave me this beat-up acoustic guitar, and he goes, fucking figure it out, dude. This is too much. So, you know, I... I if I'd have an idea, I'd sit for an afternoon yeah. on my couch in my shitty apartment in Newmarket and like, yeah. approximate the sound that I had in my head, and yeah. then I'd show him, and I'd be like, how, how, how will this sound good? Right. Like, yeah. like you can play this, uh, you know, well. This is yeah. what I'm trying to do, though. Yeah, He's right. like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. So, but, yeah, it was a completely self-taught thing, so it was interesting because I, you know, a few years ago, I started taking bass lessons for the oh, first sweet. time and it was just like oh there's like math to this and everything yeah, and it's right. like oh okay yeah I mean just for the record I'm not a, opposed to abiding needs and in fact at this stage in my life I think I would definitely benefit now that I've created my own style to me right I think it would benefit me because um, right now I have to admit at times it feels like there's like a ceiling that I yeah. hit this plateau sure um, and so you know probably maybe next year I'll, you know, when I'm finished right. writing this hardcore record I'll right. you know, do something else right um, but I want to say a couple more things about uh, you know your question about being in a band with your sibling yeah you know I mean I can totally understand why there would be some 
some siblings how it, it, it could be like a lot of butting heads. Right. It, but it was actually quite the opposite in this band. Like I think my brother and I's style of, of how we thought about music and how we wrote it was complementary, if anything else. Like yeah. my sort of more like um, sort of like off kilter anxious like sort of anxious anxiety fueled hardcore stuff was complemented by his more like well thought out stuff he had a lot better way of sort of thinking about all the instruments in the totality of the song I was more like my songs probably sounded like I was writing from just a strictly a guitar player's perspective okay. and so if I was to play you just the guitar song it was interesting enough on its own in my opinion anyway, yeah. to sort of like get my idea for this yeah. but aside from all that stuff like even just being on tour like I have so many great memories of just like driving cross country you know playing in like Texas like I remember our first tour playing in places we never even been yeah. where people were like are there to see us and like what a weird idea like I can't I mean so many occasions I remember being on stage you know in Europe or wherever and just like taking a second to like look over and see my brother playing while I'm playing and just being like I can't believe that like two brothers from like a shit town like Rochester, New Hampshire are playing for people who actually like people paid and came to see us in Scotland or wherever right. you know like right. it it was never lost on me like what an amazing sort of experience that was yeah. and how like I don't know to me again because we never set out to do it it just really made it that much more special sure sure yeah it's kind of a, just a natural progression for you yeah. guys that's that's awesome I mean that's we really awesome. just as kids I you know we've I bought a guitar when I was 16 and just like fiddled around with it, had no freaking glue. Yeah. He buys a bass, does the same thing. Yeah. And then we just start playing in bands together. Yeah. And the fact that, I mean, as I said earlier, like Backstabbers was never going to be like the Converge of the scene or even like Trap Them or sure. all these bigger, or Cave In, for instance. Right. Um, and all those bands I respect. We were always sort of like mid level, but for the amount of energy or effort, I should say effort that we put in, it paid dividends into what, how it enriched probably both of our lives. Yeah. I mean, it's just a really awesome experience. Yeah. Was, I remember, you know, because a decade plus ago, I, I, I used to work at Bull Moose in downtown oh, yeah. Portsmouth, and uh, um, I think that's probably, maybe a little before that, I think that was the first time I had ever heard backstabbers and you know I was like well these guys were really good and then someone's like oh yeah they're from New Hampshire too and I, it just blew my it, because having lived in New Hampshire for 26 of the last 30 years um, there's not a ton of bands from here it was always like uh, the 
like when I lived in Arizona and I was, you know, people would ask me about New England and they were like, oh, what bands are from there? I was always bands from Boston that sure. I was ta- you know, and, and they're like, what about, they're like, you're from New Hampshire though, right? And I was like, yeah, they're like, well, who's from New Hampshire? I'm like, you probably never heard of Scissor Fight, huh? And they're like, no, and I was like, fly, spinach, fly, nothing yeah. like that. The queers. Just, yeah, exactly. So it was like, I was like, oh, that's cool. There's a band who's like more in line with my style of sure. what I what I listen to and they're yeah. from New Hampshire so that was always I don't know to me that was like a weird like sort of like badge of honor that yeah. I was like yeah this band's pretty fucking brutal and they're from New Hampshire yeah, it's funny you use the term badge of honor because I actually had this thought a couple days ago like even in context to uh, Northern Curse being from New Hampshire yeah. or um, this new band that I'm starting being from New Hampshire one of the things that I've always noticed is so maybe we don't know about bands from New Hampshire because everybody some people lie about where they're from they say they're from New York when they're actually from you know Connecticut right. or they say they're from Boston but they're from Western Mass right. my brother and I were always like dead set against that we're like no we're from fucking New Hampshire right. we like it was a badge of honor to us to not lie about we're like no we have like nothing nothing against Boston but we were like we're not from Boston like we don't care we, we want to be known as New Hampshire band and maybe that's why we're one of the few that people may be aware of because sure. we actually admitted where we're from right you know so. it's, it's funny you say that because like I mean, I remember way back in the day, like, you know, going to a concert, buying, and this is more like the, you know, like the big shows at like Great Woods and stuff. Yeah, right. Buying the tour t-shirt, and you, it's got all the tour dates on the back, and it's got like, and it says, you know, Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm like, we're not in Boston, this is like 45 minutes <laughs> right. from Boston. Yeah, totally. And even, and you know, not to call out Caven, but like, even like, like recently, I saw a video, that, that like, hey, we're from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm like, you guys are from Methuen. Like, right. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, sure. I also know that they were overseas, and it's, that's yeah. the easiest thing. It is you know, easiest. You know, uh, but, yeah, it's funny. Uh, people just kind of pick the the closest yeah. thing for the most part. That was that was a weird thing for me, living in the Southwest and realizing how many like people have no real concept of what New England is outside right. of this, yeah. like, the you know, this corner of the United States. Because yeah. it was like, oh, you're from New Hampshire. Like that's I was like I was like it's in New England. Yeah. Like, oh, so it's near Delaware, right? I was like, well, galactically I mean, speaking, yes. Yeah. Yes. I was like, no. I mean, we've had people on tour be like, oh, you guys are from Hampshire. Like, what? What state is that? In? Right. We're like, are you fucking kidding me? Right. Yeah, but it's, I mean, even having having been to 49 of the 50 states myself, sure. there's, like, if someone were to walk in right now and put a gun to my head and, like, hold out a map and, like, there's probably 10 of them that I'm like, I know it's one of these yeah, four. Because, right. you know, I, I did this road trip a couple of years ago where I did all 48 of the lower states oh, in 38 days, but it was just, so, it was, you know, some of them, like, to get to the West Coast, I was zipping through right. two or three states a day and I was just like, did I, mean, I really go there? Yeah, I'm like, I mean, but, so my rule was I had to stop and get a cup of coffee. Oh, okay, that's good. So, you know, feet on the ground. And yep. inevitably it was when I was getting gas, whatever. But I also did a painting in each state. Oh, wow. So I had a, I have all these 12 by 12 canvases. So I just had a milk crate in the back of my car. 
I'd sit and like you know I yeah. typically I would sketch them beforehand so okay. I could just sit and do it but it was still uh, it was fun it was like a it was yeah. like a weird challenge I gave myself but I was like yeah I definitely will never do that again yeah no that's that's actually a great way to I mean having been across the US probably a dozen times myself like yeah. tour or road trips you know it's kind of the same thing like when you're on tour like you might your last show might have been in like Chicago right. and your next show in Seattle so it's like why you know did I was I in those states yeah for right. a second but you know. but yeah you've got to especially when you're kind of doing a DIY tour where you've got to get to the next place as quickly as yeah. possible yeah. yeah where you're you know if you're a bigger band and you're out on tour for you know for 20 days you've probably got some days off in between because you're not necessarily rushing to get back to a day job or whatever exactly yeah. although in 2020 I know very few musicians who don't have a day job it's so yeah it's so different than when I first kind of got into it I mean underground music has always lent itself to having to keep a day job but I mean as an example I was talking to the engineer who recorded the new Northern Chris record uh, it might have been today actually and I was like yeah he's like so what's your plan I'm like oh to put it out on a label He's like, or, or that's the question he asked. And I was like, yes, I don't know how to do it. Like, I don't know what labels exist anymore. I don't know what the deal they make is anymore. I don't even know how to really go about it. Um, I, you know, 20 years ago, like, labels are basically coming, knocking at your door, being like, yeah, I'll put this out for you. I'll put this out. Like, we didn't have to try. It's so much different now. And, like, the idea of selling music is so it just seems so different like, yeah. I don't know like we the last Northern Curse record of the, the card I gave you yeah. there that was just an online release and it felt so anticlimactic we, sure. we're like well it's like a demo I guess right. so we literally just put it on Bandcamp and right. mentioned it and what a crappy way to you know I always like to hold it in my like most people right I mean well, it's, it, having a tangible thing that you created, yeah. like, there's something to be said for that. Sure. And it's the same thing with so many people, you know, I think I'm a couple of years older than you, but, you know, when people come over to where I live and they see the music collection that I've amassed over, you know, 25, 30 years, yeah. they're like, you know, you can get all this on Spotify now. And I'm like, no, I like yeah. having an album right. And also, I'm like, I'm one of those dudes who reads liner notes. Yeah. Like, really, I mean, case in point, you know, just be topical, you know, Reed Mullins from COC just passed away this week, but, like, I found out about the Southern Poverty Law from the liner notes oh, right. of COC's Blind. Like, I had no idea about yeah, that, definitely. and I was just like, oh, this is a former hardcore turned metal band right. from North Carolina who was just like, and it's white guys, but they're like, hey, this is shit that you people should know about. Absolutely. And, like, now, and the fact that, because I think they also had something about Amnesty International in there. And okay. In 1991, like, you know, 16-year-old me only knew about Amnesty International from Sting and Peter Gabriel. Yeah, so, right. So a heavy band also, it's sort of like, oh, all right, these guys give a shit about stuff. And yeah. kind of like get, you know made an awareness to it, which you're never going to get stuff like that from from a download. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's it is as a when you're thinking about the context of writing an album, like as a musician band member, yeah, like it's all you know not only the music itself. You know, for me, it's like 
the presentation of one song leading into the next, the silences in between, but also, of course, the artwork. Like, you know, I want to, just as much as anyone else, I want to hold my own record in my hand and look at it. That's like the beauty of it. That's like what movies like Airheads are about, right? I mean, or like Bill and Ted, like, you know, Wild Stallions. You want want to have that thing. It's, It's unfortunate that a lot of music is not that way or you have to be super limited runs you know right I mean that's a whole other thing you know it's it is unfortunate and I'm really curious to see where the future goes sure you know? it's <laughs> one of the things that people you know because usually people that are 15 to 20 years older than me over the last 10 years you know ever since I opened a record store in Arizona and then coming back people were like oh yeah vinyl's making a comeback and I'm just like well it never other than about four years in the 90s it never really went anywhere yeah. and there were still bands that did stuff particularly in the, the punk and metal scenes sure. they were always putting it out but now in the last like two years and it's more like quizzical looks from people about my age they're like so cassettes are back yeah, and I'm like, like well again they never, never really, really left either yeah. yeah but I was like part of that was just I think particularly in the DIY music scenes because it's the easiest way to do it because you know particularly 15 years ago everyone had the dual cassette deck yeah. and like you know oh we have a show coming up in two weeks we'll buy a bunch of blank tapes yeah. and we'll make our own yeah and go to those and make the covers and you're yeah, good to go yeah. have a stuffing party in your living room yeah. and everyone folds J cards and yeah, yeah yeah but so it's weird because the car that I have now it's, it's new to me but it's like 15 years old and the CD player is busted sure so I, I have a little cassette walk oh, wow. with the aux cable in there so I was like I could finally listen to my friend's bands yeah because I don't have anything to play tapes in my house but yeah, yeah so I've been listening to a lot of cassettes I still have car. a box of like I got rid of most of my like you know the tapes I grew up like the thrash and death metal tapes right. I grew up on but I do have a lot of like hardcore demos so I have yeah. like Floor Punch and The Trust and like right. Proclamation and like American Nightmare like all these tapes like like still tapes that I'm holding on to like yeah. waiting for myself to get this Walkman auxiliary right. cord thing right um and I, you know, even like this newer band that I'm working on, you know, we're kind of, and even Northern Curse actually, you know, my my band members are were like, oh well, we could just do tapes. I'm like, yeah, we could, but I mean, 25 percent of people are going to listen to this. I'm like, we should do the vinyl like everyone else does, the download code in maybe CDs. The hardcore band, sure, we'll do some tapes. That'll be fun. Right. No one's going to listen to it. I got you. Know, I sang for Leash for a couple of years right. there. And same same thing. Like. I got the tapes, but I don't have the music because right. I have the tapes. I don't right. have a tape player. So even yeah. me, I'm like, oh, I'd like to listen to this, but I can't just right. sitting somewhere. That's, that's one of the ones that's in my car right now. Actually. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, um, it's funny because CDs, which was, you know, the prevalent format of music for, you know, 25 years. Yeah. Which, and a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that that's still my preferred format. I would agree. I would agree. I mean, as far as like convenience, but also um, that's what the bulk of my collection is because when I started buying music, that's what it came out on. And it's funny because a lot of people, a lot of people now with smaller bands, yeah. Don't do the seat, you know. Yeah, right. I feel like I feel like vinyls oftentimes were given, particularly with you know the heavy heavier music, yeah. and then maybe cassette. It was it was funny because uh, 
Adam McGrath, who plays guitar in Cave, and also sure. has this band Nomad Stones. And their okay. first record, physically, they only released it on vinyl, okay. which I was I was fine with. I was like, yeah. cool. I I typically don't buy new stuff on vinyl. It's yeah. kind of like tried and true. But like, yeah. if it's if it's friends, yeah, I yeah. want it on vinyl because it's cool to have your friends' records. But and then when they put out their second album last year, it was cassette only. I'm like, pick a format, dude. Like, I'm like, I'll I'll, I'll go with you on the journey, whatever. But it's yeah. got to be the same format yeah. with each release. I'm like, don't. It's like, don't give me a cassette one time, and it's going to be like a flexi disc yeah, next right. time or whatever. Yeah. No, it's true. And it is funny that CDs became like the uncool thing. The one that's the most versatile, really. Right. I mean, again, I hate to out myself. It's totally uncool, but I don't have a record player myself. I have it for 15 years. Yeah. I'm looking to change that in the near future, but quite honestly, like... I've become one of those people that buys the downloads on Bandcamp, you know, and it, it, I still actually have an iPod, that's what I usually use, um, but, it, you know, having the CD would be nice, too, to, like, just put it in, sit down and listen, or in the car, although my van CD player's also broken, so I haven't listened to that in a long time, and I don't have an auxiliary either, so I have to do the iPod through the radio, right, uh, right. that little transfer. Yeah, 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 you turn, tune it to the station. Yeah, yeah and that, you know, once I get to Boston just forget about it it's terrible so yeah. it's annoying but. yeah yeah my uh, I went on a road trip with a friend uh uh, this summer we went up to Peaks Island, you know, off of Portland. Oh, she had never been there before, and because the CD player in her car was busted, she had one of those things, So, but I drove, so she's yeah. like, I brought this thing so we can listen to music on my phone. I was like, here, just use the aux cable, and she's like, oh, because her car just didn't have an auxiliary yeah, port, right. so she's like... And she's younger than me, so it was just like it was one of those things. She had missed that, like because because yeah. like newer cars that she had been in already don't have those anymore. It's all Bluetooth and everything. So it was just like I was like, yeah, just plug that into the yeah. headphone jack, and we're good to go. She's like, oh, oh. She's like, will it charge you too? I was like, no, sorry, you can't have you can't have everything. Yeah. I mean. Let's talk for a second about, like, just, so obviously as a kid, like, you know, I grew up on cassette tapes. Um, My dad still had his vinyl, but not so much, like, he didn't really use it all that much. And then, you know, I was really late to the CD game, like, everyone had CDs, I was still rocking the tapes. Uh, But I remember, like, the first few tours, it was, like, tapes. My brother and I brought our boxes of tapes in the van. Then, CDs. So everyone brought their, like, 500K CD booklets. Right. And that rocked a couple years. But there was a huge distinction between with CDs and then the iPods. I think iPod, I remember the tour, we all got those. It was in Europe. And it went from, like, sharing the, the band radio and, like, talking and hearing new music to complete silence. Right, because everyone's Everyone better. had the earbuds in. Right. And it was such a weird... It was awesome because you went from like I can only bring twenty tapes to I can bring five hundred CDs to I can bring my whole collection and everyone else I know right. on this little thing, right. and everyone just like you know put them in your ears and that was the end of it. And now I don't even know. Probably your phone, right? I mean, yeah, I think that's what most people do. It's weird though because I think about that. You know, working at a grocery store, I see a lot of people, particularly you know people like 30 and under who 
they walk in and I see them put the earbuds oh, yeah. in, and I'm like, and I get it, and part of me is like, I get that you like music, and I'm like, I can say with some confidence, I probably love music more than the Fair average enough. person, yeah. and I was like, but part of the musical experience is hearing shit that you're not super into because I feel like it sharpens your taste yeah. but also I've got turned on to new like I can think of so many bands that the first time I heard them was walking into either a record store or a coffee shop yeah. and somebody else's music was playing and yeah. I was like what is this yeah. like having no entry point with it and being turned on to it whereas like because the way like stuff caters to us so much it's only it's an echo chamber you're only only yeah, being exactly. recommended stuff that's like stuff that you already like. It's, I mean, I don't do you know Pandora or Spotify because no, they drive me nuts. It was fun. I remember five years ago when I was at a job that they had like they had a you know an iPod that was just dedicated to that for music. And when we closed, we could put on your own channel. And I remember putting on uh, Tool radio because you know I'm a fan of the band Tool, sure. but then like right after that it was like disturbed and I was like how dare you Spotify how what, what, are, you, what are you trying to yeah. say about me and then I was just like yeah I can't deal with this and right. I was like but they're like yeah but you like the guitars and the singer with the shaved head that's the, this is what our algorithm's telling you and yeah. I'm just like it's not a, not really yeah. yeah I'm just like that's not it's all more nuanced than that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that reminds me of a funny story of like how not just the algorithms decide but how other people it would be amazing if you could go like figure out a way to hear what we like for the first time again and yeah. to see what it feels like or something you're not accustomed to right case in point 20 something years ago i'm at my parents house visiting visiting my parents and uh I'm like in the living room. My dad's in the sh- in the bathroom shaving or something. Yeah. And uh, MTV was on, and uh, it was that awful song. Well, not a bad song. Terrible cover. It was uh, Limp Biscuit covering George Michael's oh, Faith. Oh, Faith, sure. So the song's going on, and I'm obviously thoroughly annoyed. And I hear my dad in the bathroom. He's like, "Hey, is that Matt? Is that your band?" And I was like. Obviously, just like that's probably the worst thing you could ever hear. Right. Uh, but maybe to my dad, right. it's like, oh, it's someone yelling over loud guitars. Right. It sounds the same. Right. It's like it was like an aha moment. I'm right. like, wow. Like, <laughs> just to your point about the algorithm is telling you that disturbed is the same as to it, yeah. where obviously it's not. But but to, to, to a cursory glance. Particularly someone who doesn't listen to that type sure. of music, they're like, "Oh, it's, it's the same. same." Screaming and this heavy yeah. guitar, it's yeah. the same. To, Get to, over yourself, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, to, to you know, counterpoint to that story. As I said before, I was I was walking in York Beach today. I was walking. I walked to Neville Lighthouse and then was yes. walking back and then apropos of nothing because I wasn't listening to music I, I I actually just like hearing the sound of the ocean and stuff like that when right. I walk in okay. Limp Biscuits uh, and Together Now the song they did with Method Man popped into my head okay. I hadn't heard that in probably probably 10 years and I'm just like why why is why is this in my head what what am I punishing myself yeah right for? I mean I did there was a car commercial recently that and I, I will give him props because it, it was it, it was basically 
the gist of the commercial was like this car lasts a long time and the CD that they had been listening to in the 90s was Limp Bizkit CD okay. and then as the car gets older like the CD player starts skipping yeah. and the CD's stuck in there ah. and at the end of the commercial they like stop because there's someone in a crosswalk and the music's blaring they're like embarrassed and they look and it's Fred Durst walking across the street and he like looks at them but I was just like well, at least he has a sense of humor. About yeah. At this point. Or either that, or he's like, "This is the only way I'm making money off this song ah, yeah, this day." But you know, yeah. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah, I. Um, he did it all for the Nookie, anyway. So it's true. It's true. So yeah, who knows if it worked? I, actually, it didn't work for him, did it? I feel kind of bad. For him. I, I I was amazed. Um, I think it was 2017. One of the best records that I heard was Wes Borland, the guitar player from that. His okay. solo album, and it's very like it's very cinematic. I mean, it's just it's all instrumental, sure. but and it's called the Crystal Machete, and it was one of okay. those things that like I was almost embarrassed to tell people. But I was like, if you listened to the record and had no idea who it was, you'd be like, you'd oh. see what I was talking about, and yeah. then you're like, who is this? And I'd be like, Wes Borland. They're like, I feel like I know that name. I'm like, you do. <laughs> I'm like it's the guy with all the face paint and yeah, the lights the, the, and stuff yeah, like that. Which contacts I think even at the time people were like, Well the guitar player is good. I don't like what he's sure. playing, but he clearly knows his way around that instrument. Yeah, but yeah, it was yeah, it was a that's such a weird like that band in particular, but that whole time frame of yeah. music, um, it's so funny to think about. Because I remember I saw Corn and the Deftones together because sure. it came out basically the same yeah, time, basically, same yeah. scene, and in the beginning. You know, you would be amiss if you couldn't distinguish the two bands. Yeah, right, exactly. And they, I mean, and they're both still making music. I mean, I use that term loosely with porn, but like the fact that like the Deftones turned into this weird like Depeche Mode sort of like angular, bizarre band. I was just like, eh. It's it's funny because that was like a really, uh, just a snapshot in time where you wouldn't know that shit was about to go really wrong. Right. A good example would be, I remember in high school um, when the Judgment Night soundtrack came yeah. out and like my friends and I were blown away because I liked Slayer yeah. and I liked Onyx. I liked Cypress Hill and I liked, you know, Sonic Youth or whatever. Dinosaur Jr., Dell, the Funky you know, all these bands were like, Faith and War, another huge one. And Who We Are Tribe, I mean, that song still that's slays to it is I mean to, to, to this day it's an amazing song and like for that one second you're like this is awesome and yeah. it's gonna be awesome yeah. and then it just quickly you know I think my friends and I we like that record um, Rage Against Machine was huge at the time too like right. it was taking the same sort of elements and I didn't even know at the time like it made sense later when I found out that Zach you know Del Rocco wasn't like um Inside Out Inside and he was in that yeah. straight edge band um, Hard Stance I was yeah. like oh this all makes sense because these guys are coming from what I like right um, but that it wore out like even that first I only was a fan of the first Rage because by the time everyone else I'm not saying this because I thought it was cooler but the, the reality is like I heard it early on I right. liked it and then it took like two or three years for mainstream to sort of catch up sure. and then it was overplayed right. and I just lost my taste for it and I definitely confess to liking the first Corn a lot I saw Corn like three times yeah. at the same time that I liked Morbid Angel and Minor Threat right. so it was just you know you're in high school and I mean I still will say that their first album was like 
it was just a different sound. Yeah, nothing sounded like, I mean, particularly having a heavy band with bagpipes. Right. It's like, because, I mean, and for anyone who's like, oh, it's a gimmick, I'm like, no, Jackal with the chainsaw, that's a, that's a gimmick. <laughs> I'm all on my jack now, right. baby. <laughs> just like, but... Yeah, that first record really kind of kind of blew me away, and even elements of the second one where they where they did Low Rider with the bagpipes oh, and everything. Right. I, but, but after that, I was just like, "All right, this is getting yeah. getting worse and worse." And I don't I don't fault them. I mean, you know, it's the same thing as like what happened to probably like you know hair metal going into grunge and so on and so forth. It always happens, right? Yeah. I mean, it just becomes a parody of itself, a caricature, and you right. move on. Um, there's very few things that escape them. But I think the sort of, at the same time that like mall golf and pop punk is becoming popular. Right. And it's just getting really, I mean, I never, by the time I was like in sixth grade, I already liked underground music. So it was always going to be that way. I was always going to be like one of those music snobs that thought anything that was popular was annoying. But with that being said, I mean, that stuff did get pretty cringeworthy you know it's not much you know in some of the guys as to your point about Fred Durst like you know people weren't saying the same thing about U2 after they became super huge so there was something about that particular style of music sure sure well and I think particularly because that was sort of like the the high point of album sales as far as people buying physical music yeah and so you know arguably a lot of those guys at that point were making some of the most money that anyone, you know, making music, other than bands like U2 and R.E.M. and Metallica, who are just career people who have been doing it for yeah. 20 years at that point already, but anyone who was new in the last 10 years, you know, they're all of a sudden selling six, seven, eight million copies of, you know, records. Right. I think that sort of, like, the lifestyle that goes along with it kind of lends itself to, like, douchebag behavior, you yeah. know. Uh, and, and, and any excess gone unchecked sort of like you know the human ego just yeah you know, we can we can only say no so long yeah you know, right so yeah <laughs> so you've mentioned the new project a couple times does it have a sure. name yet or, or are you keeping it under I know it's, it's to go back to what we were saying before about not talking about things until so there's something done. it doesn't have a name I mean, basically, I've had this secret fantasy of wanting to be in, like, a youth crew-style hardcore band forever. And I just want to sing, like, growing up in, like, this, you know, the hardcore scene of, like, the early, mid, and late 90s, some of my biggest influences, or some of the shows that were happening, even in Rochester at the time, were, like, Tenured Fight, Floor Punch, Rancor, Fast Break, Bane, obviously... And even though at the time I was more into like Disrupt or His Hero is Gone, those shows were great. They were fun. And, you know, I was straight edge. My brother was straight edge. Most of my friends at that time were straight edge. And, you know, veganism was huge. So I was like in Earth Crisis. And so all those bands, Path Resistance, like all those bands, you know, I wasn't a spiritual person. But these were like the closest things, you know. I really felt a connection to a group. Yeah. You know, growing up in Rochester, there wasn't a lot of like, you know, aside from my group of friends, there wasn't a lot to do, and there wasn't a lot of, you know, there was a lot of rednecks around there, obviously. Um, and 
having that happen at that moment in my life was really awesome to see all these people are like, hey, we're going to have a good time without drinking alcohol right. and then later meet and things like that. So one thing I miss about those shows, and perhaps they still happen and I don't know about them, in my speaking of algorithm, my YouTube algorithm at this point would sell me out in all the different, like, you know, all these awesome bands that I missed in the last few years because I have been paying attention. A lot of Boston bands, like Arrival Mob, No Tolerance, a lot of straight edge stuff too. Uh, Boston Stranglers, pretty awesome. So these have been happening simultaneously to what I've been doing. I just yeah. haven't been to these shows. And so the, the catalyst behind this band is basically one of the things I've always sort of I understood but made me uncomfortable about being in a band like Backstabbers is that we were just off kilter enough that we got the crossed arm stare at the shows right? right so in some ways it fuels your desire to play that much harder right but for your parents or friends who might come to the show they're like does anyone even like you guys right. you know right. and then you have people coming up you know you're playing in Oklahoma and you've got a you know 40 year old guy coming up to you telling you he's wanted to see you for 10 years but to yourself on the stage seeing this you just feel like you're there's this disconnect yeah. you know and that was the opposite of why I got into hardcore like as a kid you know I'm looking up to Slayer and you know thrash band like Metallica and it was that huge stage and all the lights and the photographers and like the space between the stage and the you know whatever but going to hardcore shows it was like or even like grindcore shows I remember going to see Brutal Truth in Nashua as a yeah. kid that was the first show I went to where the stage was literally six inches high right um, you know what's his name Kevin Sharp and uh, the famous bass player whose name is escaping me right now they were selling the merch while eating pizza right so hardcore opened up this whole idea about there being no distinction between the audience and the bands and not to say that hardcore of the Boston area now or Portland or any of these local areas are like that but I see very little crowd participation everything maybe it's the way the world is now in the last decade or so the bands are getting darker angrier maybe possibly like more violent in some ways music in their musicality but in their presentation but the audience often is just standing there looking at their phone taking pictures or there's always that like god awful horseshoe where no one wants to get up to the edge of the stage right now that's a stark contrast to the shows that I was referencing like Tenured Fighter or Four Punch or whatever because going to see those bands like it was a way for the audience to sort of you know get excited and Youth Crew has it's like positive edge to it so you're not there like you're going to see Mad Ball or 25 to Life where you're going to beat the crap out of everybody but you're running around bumping into people singing the words you all have like you're all sharing the same space so that's essentially what this band my hope you know it's like to have the kind of crowd participation of of bands like American Nightmare where everyone's smiling you know the music is going to be fast loud noisy aggressive but the underlying idea is like essentially community and uh, you know get into it I mean I have to say at 42 
myself going to see a show, I'm probably not going to go running around right. like I did 20 years ago. Right. But that being said, when I saw Integrity like two months ago, I right. definitely did that. Right. Or Earth Crisis last spring. Sure. But I mean, I get it. Like, no one wants to be the guy who's like running around by himself, especially at my age. Like, right. Who the hell's that old guy in there doing that? <laughs> um, but the, I don't know. Like, why aren't the younger kids as excited as we were? Is sure. it just that particular brand of hardcore that we're witnessing? Maybe. Like I said, I have been out of touch with the modern versions of these youth crew bands right. but I'd like to think especially in this area I mean you're, you live around here like just as we were talking before I think we started the podcast about vegan food around here the music scene is also aside from like uh, Boston and um, Portland with uh, this guy John Morris who has been doing tons of awesome things for Geno's. Yeah. There's nothing in freaking Portsmouth or Dover, at least again, to my knowledge. Right. It's like, well, how can that possibly be? Is it just no venues? Is it like no other no bands? Right. You know, I mean, it's sad and sort of frustrating. Yeah. And it's it's weird because you know, having lived in this area and you've been, you know someone who's always consumed music, always gone to see live music, it never seemed weird to me to have to drive an hour north or south to see sure. bands, but it's all, and, and I know there's enough people around here that are into music that it would seem like a no-brainer, but I've also been to local shows where there's no yeah, one there. I mean, no one there. I, you know, Facebook, I saw... Um, Old Man Bloom played at 3S Arts Oh, yeah, space, right, right. And there was maybe 40 people there. Yeah. And it was, I, I was like, what's happening? Yeah. And then, you know, a couple days later on social media, when some of the pictures started coming up, you're like, how did it, I didn't know. How, how did it, I mean, and part of that, I think, is that, that venue, particularly when they got off the ground, were using social media exclusively. Sure. The way that, you know, the way that Facebook's algorithms work, sometimes you don't see stuff till the show is gone. Exactly, yeah. But I also know, because I told probably two dozen people that I'm like, even if you don't know this band, you should come to this show, because yeah. A, it's 12 bucks, and B, you'll thank me later, yeah. and then they're like, ah, next time, I'm like, I mean, turns out with that incarnation, there was a next time because unfortunately, Cave uh, yeah, yeah, passed away. But um, I was just like, yeah, this band played three shows in North America, and Portsmouth was one of them. And no one came. Yeah, and then, you know, their New York show and their Albuquerque show were sold out. Yeah. So, yeah. It is, it's like sort of almost humiliating in a way because we have this great place that had been talked about for a long time before it actually came to fruition. Right. And I mean, I don't fault anyone who's currently booking shows there because what we're talking about is not their wheelhouse, really. Right. And to their credit, when I set up a show for Northern Curse with help with uh, John from Portland, John yeah. Morris, um, the show went off pretty well, considering. Yeah. But what I heard from almost every single person who came to the show was, this place is awesome. How come I've never heard of it? Right. And that's sad because I in no way am naive enough to think that a venue like that's going to have black metal shows every week. I think it's not too unheard of to do one a month or one every three months sure. where these bigger bands can come because it is a great, it is actually a really good place to see a show and to play. And it's a perfect size yeah. venue for shows like that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's great for the bands. They can have something to eat. It seems to be enough parking. 
it's yeah. not in central downtown. Right. Um, I mean, if you're a really big band, you could stay at one of the freaking hotels right there. Right. But it's being, in my opinion, like very underutilized. Yeah, it for feels like a waste of commodity right yeah. now. Because the other problem is, is when you, a band like Old Man Gloom comes around, it's like the chicken or the egg situation. Where would more people have come if there was like, I mean, Old Man Gloom's only from Boston, so they are local. Right. But would there be more local bands if there were more local places to play? Sure. Um, at work today, I think the Red Door came up and how that place is also gone and why that wasn't the greatest venue to see a show or a play. They let you do it. Right. I mean, Leash played there when I was in it. Northern Curse played there. I had like a Godflesh worship band that played there. Um, again, sound quality, terrible. Right. Uh, but it only took like 15 people to pack it, so right. it felt like something. Right. Um, and that was the closest thing I remember to being like a venue in Portsmouth that would have shows. You know, the last, I don't know if you were around here back in the day, but like the Elvis Room was the only other yeah, thing that we had. Yeah, my band played at Elvis Room a bunch. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they even had. Uh, I saw Nile there once, which yep. is insane. Oh, wow. You can't even, right? I mean, just before their like super huge popularity, but right. nonetheless, they played them. And we could have that. I mean, yeah. 3S, uh, to your point, I mean, you're not going to get like, I don't know, Behemoth to play there or something, but you can get a lot of like, you know, the converges of the world to play. Right. I mean, that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. But you have to be careful because you can't have four of those shows a month no right. one's going to show up you got to right. do it once a month once Bang a few months exactly yeah. so if there's anyone out there who books underground shows maybe uh, looking to 3S yeah for sure for sure because sure. uh, yeah, and you know the other thing is like they have a lot of gaps on their calendar too yeah so right it's like you know it's just a space that's not being used you know seven days a week so I'm sure that they'd appreciate yeah having well also let's not forget like we and this is this is a shout out to Aaron from Return to the Pit I mean that guy alone has kept the scene going just from his attendance at all these shows right running the radio show plus also taking did I already say taking pictures of it and mentioning the shows right so he's documenting the shows and he has a radio show yeah so we have an underground radio show that would play the local bands there was a point in time where he used to have bands on to either play or do interviews with yeah. and that's maybe something I mean I I don't get to listen to it as much as I like but he's been doing it forever and if we could you know have that be an extension of these shows locally I yeah. mean we could have a scene so again I don't know where everybody is but yeah. we have all the things in place we have a venue that would actually have these shows yeah. I mean I've heard some heavier style bands playing at the press room, yeah. but I don't think they're doing, they're not going to do any hardcore shows. So. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what the heaviest band, because it was someone who played there this summer that I was like, oh, okay. Um, but they, I mean, and they're getting, you know, a lot of, you know, mid-level national acts playing oh, there okay. too, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is I never actually, I mean, we're here in Sunny's and Backstabbers played with uh, Ringworm here, which is oh, kind of, nice. I'm like looking around the room right now. It's kind of hard to believe that actually transpired. Yeah, back in the little corner behind yeah, the right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a funny, funny story about that. There's a piano back there. Oh, that piano used to be my mother's. Oh, it really? Was, it was her high school graduation gift. And um, 
she never learned to play. My younger brother is a very accomplished keyboard player and piano player, but he lives in Poland. His wife's Polish. He's a he's a touring musician over there, but there's no way he was going to get the piano over there. And so my other younger brother has a recording studio here in Dover, and uh, he he used to be in the Rollins Fruit Mills, and he had that there. And when he moved to this new place, he's like, I'm not paying to move the piano a second time. So he knew the guys here. So he's like, you can't have the piano, but as long as you're open, if, you know, because, you know, they have, like, the Soggy Paul Boys play here a lot, and sure bands like that. So he's like, you can have it as the house piano. So, it, yeah. That's, wow. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. It's a pretty awesome. nice piano, too. Yeah. So, yeah. That's great. That's a great story. That's awesome. That's my, that's my claim to fame with, yeah. the, with some, well, that and I used to do dishes here a couple years ago. Oh, okay. But, right. um, it was funny because when, when Emma Popeye earlier, I've done, because uh, before, before we started recording, we were talking about how, you know, I've done a few of these podcasts where sure. I have a long conversation. Because when you suggested Sonny's the other day, I was like, that's funny because the other two that I did here were similar situations where okay. the people I had never had. And also, both of those were surprise interrupted by people who had been on the podcast before so it's keeping so yeah next time I next time I do one at Sonny's you'll, you'll have to pop yeah, back and say hello yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, yeah I had a thought at the last moment to do uh, tokens but then I probably would have been distracted by right. all the games down there but. it's funny because I'm trying to uh, and I don't want to let the cat out of the bag with talking about what I'm going to do as opposed to what I'm, what I'm what I've done but yeah. I'm trying to find a venue for sort of an alternative type of show, and I, you know, I reached out to a couple of clubs, and they're like, and I explained to them specifically what it is, and they're like, I, I don't know if there's, a, I'm like, that's fine, I'm willing to rent the room okay. to try it, and then I was like, I wonder if tokens would be, yeah, kind of like, because I, I went to a friend's 40th birthday party there sure. last summer, and they had rented it out, and granted, it was like an afternoon, but I was yeah. like, that would be kind of a cool thing to do, and like. I'm like, I bet you they haven't done a show there. Um, no. And you so, know, do you know Josh, the owner? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. He, would, he would understand it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he'd at least be open until, to listening to it. And, yeah. You know, you know, if it's like a low stakes night, he'd be like, eh, whatever. Yeah, sure. right. So, totally. yeah, we'll see. That's so, awesome. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Because he used to run uh, Exit 23, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 And we have a, like, I don't know him super well, but like when I went in there, because he was, he was behind the bar for the first party and he's like I feel like we know each other I was like yeah we do and I you know, went through the list of friends and come and he's like oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's yeah. right yeah so but I mean that's Seacoast New Hampshire anyways yeah. it's just like you know just, I, I found out last night because I was talking to uh, a friend Phil Bryant that is a mutual friend he's just like oh yeah 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 because yeah. Phil and I worked at the grocery store that I work at, you know, and right I, on, yeah. I, I only say that because I'm not supposed to mention it on a podcast. Where, okay. So, like, because I, I did stand up a couple of weeks ago and I talked about some stuff there, and I was just like the grocery store, and someone's like, <laughs> "We all know where you work." I was like, "That's fine, but this is, you know, I, I can't do it." And, and it's only if I say something terrible or whatnot, but it's just easier for me to just say, not and then say whatever I I'm want. Glad I didn't slip up and say it myself. Right? No, no, it, it's fine. It, it's fine. 
and it's not that big a deal. I didn't know for the first six months I was there because I have another podcast and we okay. talk about it all the time. And one of the managers is like, oh, you don't mention where you work on the podcast. I'm like, of course not. And, then, and I was like, shit. I was like, oh, well, guess going forward I won't. But yeah. Right on. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, man. I really yeah, it was great. It. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out. I definitely appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, you were, it's funny. When I started doing this podcast uh, three and a half years ago, I was like, I probably know like 30 or 40 people that I'd like to talk to. And I actually have a notebook where I just made a physical list. Yeah. Um, and you were definitely on one of those people. But it was also like, I was like, I just sat and wrote until names didn't pop into my head yeah. anymore of people. And, I, you know, and I've added people since then. And sure. other people have even reached out and be like, hey, do you want to talk to so-and-so? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. Definitely. And I'm basically open to talk to anyone. But, yeah, it, it was like, I think it was 207 names. was on, And that was just like either people I knew personally or it was like one person away from hey will you tell your friend I want to talk to them for my podcast so yeah I know I've I always feel bad like I always feel like I'm bugging people but I also was like I know he's busy and I feel like he'd be like ah it's not for me but thanks but I was just like yeah it'll happen one day so yeah yeah, yeah, totally I'm definitely glad no I definitely appreciate it it's always I'm it's awesome that someone is interested in what I do so I I, I appreciate it absolutely right on thanks man yeah cool